Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus, chapter 26. We're not through with dealing with the coverings of the tabernacle yet. We still have a few things to say about it. We talked about the first covering in verse 1 of the curtains of fine twine linen and all the embroidery work and the blue and purple and scarlet and the cunning work upon them of cherubims. And we talked about the length of one curtain in verse 2, 8 and 20 cubits, 28 cubits, and the breadth of it, 4 cubits. And we said that formed the ceiling of the tabernacle. That's the first layer of cover. And we talked a great deal about that. And then you get down to verse 7, it says, And thou shalt make curtains of goat's hair to be a covering upon the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shalt thou make. The length of the one curtain shall be 30 cubits instead of 28, and the breadth of one curtain 4 cubits, and the 11 curtains shall be of one measure. Now then, the reason for that is that you had the extra covering over the linen curtain, so it would come down on the sides, and also 11, making it where you could fold back on the entrance of the tabernacle, uh, the door of the, of the main part of the tabernacle. And we'll get into that in just a moment and talk about that. And we read on down in verse 14 where you have another covering. It says, Now shall make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering above of badger skins. And then in verse 15 we'll pick up with the thought of the boards of the tabernacle. But let's conclude with all those uh, coverings. We dealt with the coverings of uh, fine twine linen and we said several things about it first of all we said that uh, white linen represents spotlessness and then the blue speaks of heaven the heavenly nature of Christ he came down from heaven ascended to heaven and we talked about the purple speaking of Christ as the king's son and uh, the scarlet reminds us of Christ's death and we gave you some information on that and we notice that these four colors represent four aspects of Christ in the Gospels. The linen, you'll find, uh, represents Luke's Gospel. And the blue, John, the heavenly. And the purple, Matthew. And the scarlet, Mark. And that's as far as we got in talking about these coverings of the tabernacle. I remember when it was over uh, Sunday evening, well, Brother Tom he asked me about the uh, ones there of... Uh, how they represented the Gospels. And so I had forgotten from here to there. So I came back here and gave him the notes on it. And he could understand it. Alright, we need to notice that in whatever direction the priest on the inside, everywhere he saw uh, the wings of the cherubim. He saw this embroidered work, the priest on the inside of the tabernacle. He saw the white linen. He saw the uh, embroidery work. And he saw the cherubims uh, embroidered. And under the shadow of those wings, he felt perfectly safe. Remember, there were wings of the cherubim inside the Holy of Holies that overshadowed the mercy seat. That was another story altogether that we have already somewhat dealt with. But let me give you a couple of verses of Scripture. In Psalm 57.1 and in Psalm 63.7. Now, Psalm 57.1, let me read it for you. Uh, Psalm 57 and verse 1. It says, Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me. For my soul thirsteth 
uh, trusteth in thee. Yea, now look, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. So, uh, we should be safe and secure in the shadow of His wings. The priest certainly felt a security when he went into the to the tabernacle, having these cherubims of uh, embroidered work in the linen uh, ceiling covering. And then we gave you another one, uh, Psalm 63, if you'll turn over there. And verse uh, 7, it says, I think I have the right verse. Yeah, 63 verse 7, it says, Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. We have a lot of songs under His wings and different things about being uh, under the protective hand of God and under the, in the presence of God. And certainly that is an encouragement to us. God's children abide under the shadow of the wings of the Lord. And these curtains, by the way, are held together by gold tashes or rings. And by Him all things are held together. Romans 8.28, let me read this for you. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. You ought to write down that one. Romans 8.28. Now we come to the goat's hair coverings. And these had eleven curtains instead of ten. And the eleventh curtain was doubled up in the front forefront of the tabernacle. It completely covered the linen curtains and more. Now, the beauty of Christ is not revealed except to the priest on the inside. The ghost hair teaches us two things. Substitution and forgiveness. Remember there was a substitution. There was uh, on the Day of Atonement all the forgiveness of the sins of the children of Israel and then also forgiveness. And that's bound together in, in the New Testament for you and I. Well, say for instance... Ephesians 1 7 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, redemption, and that was, of course, by substitution, through his blood, even the forgiveness, or the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And I was quoting Colossians 1 14 because it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So one of them says, According to the riches of his grace, and then Colossians 1 14 says, Even the forgiveness of sins. And so these two things are accomplished. This has to do with the great day of atonement. One goat died for our sins, that substitution. The other goat was taken to the wilderness and turned loose. And this was the scapegoat. So that Christ uh, became our scapegoat as well as our substitute. And uh, we're told that, that we're separated from our sins as far as the east is from the west. So far hath He removed uh, our transgressions from us. In Isaiah 55, verse 7, it says, let, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So we have substitution, we have forgiveness of sins, and pardon that comes from the Lord. Then we have what we call the ram skins dyed red. That was on down in verse, uh, let's see, what verse 14, wasn't it? Thou shalt make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red, and a covering above a badger skin. So we'll have those two to deal with now. Now then, the ram was a clean animal, by the way. 
and the ram spoke of the sinlessness of Christ. The blood was put uh, on the right ear and the right thumb and the right toe of the priest when he entered in to the uh, holy place. What does that speak of? Ear and and uh, ear and uh, thumb and toe. It speaks that Christ listened to the. You know, we listen with our ears. And then He was given authority, the right hand. And then Christ walked in the pathway laid out by the Father. So it's our hearing and our authority, our work, and then our walk. And these three things the priest had to be identified with. He had to hear from God and he had to, to do the work of God and he, under God's authority and he had to walk in the right way. Well, Jesus did all this into perfection. He listened to the Heavenly Father completely. And He said, I do always all those things that, uh, that He tells me to do. And then furthermore, He had the authority. He says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And we know that the pathway that He walked in this life was laid out by the Father, even unto His death on the cross. These ram skins were dyed red. This points to Calvary's cross. And we've quoted time and time again 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning with verse 18. Remember what it says? For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest means He was born into this world, manifest in these last times for you who by Him to believe in God, that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory, the last, that your faith and hope might be in God. All of this, that your faith and hope might be in God. And that's 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19. In fact, it goes beyond that. Verse 19 tells of, of the Lamb without blemish and without spot. Now then, then we come to the badger skin. Literally, it says literally skins of blue leather. The same leather out of which they made their shoes, by the way. A stranger would be at a loss to understand why Israel thought so much of the tabernacle because looking at the tabernacle from the outside, it was not very appealing. Here you have this little building down there in a court. Of course, the court fence was more impressive than the tabernacle itself to those on the outside. They thought, well, it's a good-looking fence around a little building here, but what does it mean? And so coming over a hill, you look and you see this thing covered with badger skins. Kind of a dull, leather-looking cover. And so a stranger would certainly be at loss to understand what they, why they thought so much of this little building inside this court fence. And the world does not understand Christ nor Christianity. It's only when you get in the house of God and see the glories of what the Lord does and experience the salvation that He's wrought for us and, and look at Calvary's cross and see what He did for us and look at the sinlessness of Christ and see what He is and look at the deity of Christ and see that He came down from heaven, that He's a heavenly man dwelling upon this earth in the midst of sinners. And we see the beauty of the Lord. But the, the fellow on the outside doesn't see that. It says, be a Christian. You've got to give up this, give up that, and the other. And you don't do this, and you don't do that. I'd rather live out here in the world and have a lot of good times and all. See, that's the way the world looks at it. They don't have as good a time as they think, though. Amen. And to tell you the truth, 
most of the time when they think they have the happy hour, the next morning they got to try to get over a hangover, don't they? And when they get involved in some of their so-called pleasures, they find out that they end up in trouble. The gospel is foolishness to them that believe not. The Bible says so. And this world sees nothing beautiful about the Lord. And so we have to understand what people saw when they, when they looked at the outside of this tabernacle. Now we're going to get into some more teaching here on uh, something else. We, if you still have your place in uh, Exodus chapter 26, we'll read another section here and we'll talk about the framework of the tabernacle, the boards and all. We may review a little bit to bring you up to date, but this is another section. Let's read beginning with verse uh, uh, 15, if you will. Exodus 26:15, And thou shalt make boards for the tabernacle of Shittim wood. And that's acacia wood, by the way. Another name for it. And also, it's a very good wood, very durable. Kind of like, well, even better maybe than the redwood. Redwood endured is pretty good wood. But this is harder and more close-grained. And it's called acacia wood in some instances. Uh, Ten cubits shall be... Well, I didn't read all of verse 15. Thou shalt make boards of the, for the tabernacle of Shittim wood standing up. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the breadth of one board. Two tenons shall uh, there be in one board set in order one against another. Thus shalt thou make for all the boards of the tabernacle. Now then, it says, And thou shalt make boards for the tabernacle, for the tabernacle, twenty boards, on the south side, southward. And thou shalt make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards, two sockets under one board for his two tenons, and two sockets under another board for his two tenons. See, each board had two tenons that came down and they were, uh, so to speak, uh, to fit in the mortise socket in the silver. There were sockets in the silver. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, there shall be twenty boards. And there forty sockets of silver, two sockets under one board and two sockets under another board. And for the sides of the tabernacle, westward, thou shalt make six boards. So what do you have? Uh, and then in verse 23, and two boards shalt thou make for the corners of the tabernacle in the two sides. So actually on the west end, or it's called a side here, you had six boards. And then you had the two boards that made, however they fixed it, made up of corner boards. So you had a total of 48 boards. Some have, some have concluded that there's 50, but I can only count 48. And uh, by the way, that's the tenor of our teaching on it. And verse 24, And they shall be coupled together beneath, and they shall be coupled together above, the head of it unto one ring. Thus shall it be for them both. They shall be for two corners. They shall be eight boards in their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two sockets under one board and two sockets under another board. And thou shalt make bars of shittim wood or acacia wood, five for the boards of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the two sides westward. And the middle bar in the midst of the board shall reach from end to end. So you had, you had uh, two bars above the center boards and two bars below the... I mean, two bars above and two bars below and then one bar that reached from 
all the way through from end to end. We'll talk about what it typifies in a little bit. And thou shalt overlay the boards with gold and make their rings of gold for places for the bars. And thou shalt overlay the bars with gold. And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. So Moses had exact instructions of how to build this tabernacle. Talking now about the framework of the tabernacle. And this framework holds everything. The boards and the bars and the foundation holds everything together. All these coverings and everything is dependent upon that framework. Now we'll talk about this and we'll talk about the framework of the tabernacle as we progress along. Now let me just bring you up to date. We've studied up to this point all the furniture within the tabernacle itself. Now we've not studied the furniture on the outside of the tabernacle. You see there on your diagram uh, the brazen labor and the brazen altar of sacrifice. We haven't studied those yet because that's outside of the tabernacle. It's within the court fence. So it's outside the building. And we haven't studied that. And we found uh, that there's five pieces of furniture inside the tabernacle if you count the ark and the mercy seat as two pieces. <clears throat> because behind the veil here there was the ark and the mercy seat. In here there was the altar of incense. Then the seven branch golden candlestick. And then the table of showbread. So if you count the ark with two pieces counting the ark itself and then the covering, which is called the mercy seat, which actually are two pieces. Then you have five pieces. Five in the Bible is always a number of grace. And it is the grace of God that provides salvation. It's the grace of God that brings God down to man. You remember we sing the song, Oh, the Calvary, Oh, the grace that made salvation plan. Oh, the grace that brought God to man and brought us together joined us together. And then uh, it's grace that reconciles man to God. In fact, it, that allows him to be reconciled to God is grace, isn't it? And then it's grace that allows man to come into the presence of God. So all the way through, these five represent grace any way you look at it. The tabernacle describes God coming out to man. We've mentioned this before. Not man going to God. We, we will see His approach later on through the gate in the brazen altar. But now God is on the inside and He has shown us by the steps we've taken of the furniture of Him coming out to man. And then in the next description we'll get when we study the pieces of furniture on the outside, we call them furniture, the brazen altar and the brazen labor, and even the gate and the entrance to the court itself. We'll study that from man as He comes into God's presence. But first of all, God says He comes out to us. Isn't that the way it's happened all through history? Isn't that the way it happened in the Garden of Eden? What was Adam doing? Was he saying, God, where are you? No, he wasn't saying, God, where are you? God says, Adam, where art thou? As if he didn't know. He knew where he was all the time. But he wanted to bring Adam to confession and to make him realize what he had done. He says, I heard thy voice and I was afraid. God says, well, what made you afraid? He says, have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? And Adam says, yes, the woman that you gave me, she tempted me and made me to eat of that tree. And then, of course, the woman turned over and says, well, the devil made me do it. 
And then God starts at the bottom. He said to the serpent, and He gave him His uh, view. And then He turned to the woman, said, In sorrow you'll bring forth children. And then He turned to man, Sweat of thy face shall you eat bread all the days of your life. And the ground's cursed as well, and thorns and thistles will bring forth. And so it's all a result of the curse. And all because of Adam's sin. You know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to look him up and say, Adam, you gave me a bad time. <laughs> I, I thought of that. You know, I, I was thinking of that yesterday and today. I thought, well, you know, if it hadn't been for Adam leaving us with a sinful nature, we might not have been so bad after all. But, but anyway, we're responsible for our own sins, though. But his, his sin brought brought judgment upon the whole race. It says, For by one man, listen carefully, for by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death hath passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. I believe that's Romans 5 verse 12 probably. But anyway, if I give you a scripture, you can check it out. And if I'm wrong, well, I'll try to apologize for it later. I remember one time, had a bunch of trees I wanted to cut down there on the property. And Louis just hated for me to cut a tree. And so I talked to, to Daryl, and Daryl says, Daddy, just go ahead and cut them. And then says, it's a lot easier to apologize for it later than it is to try to get permission. <laughs> but you know, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it's hard to apologize for it later. He thought he had it figured out, but I'm not so sure it was. But anyway... Uh, we know that that uh, man doesn't necessarily seek God, and uh, the tabernacle does describe coming out God coming out to man in the sense that we've been studying it. And ta- the tabernacle here shows us God's provision for sinful man, and it speaks of Christ. There's a scripture in the Psalm I've been intending to look it up. I used to have it real ready at hand, but it says in the temple every bit uttereth His glory or speaks of His glory. And I can find the verse. You might find it in your concordance real easy. But there's one verse in one of the Psalms that says in the temple it all speaks of His glory. So in the tabernacle that gave way to the temple later on, all of it speaks of Christ and speaks of His person and of His work. And so we want to remember that. Now then, uh, uh, we've studied also uh, the ark, remember we studied the ark. And this speaks of the person and work of Christ. This ark was made of acacia wood, picture of the humanity of Christ. The wood was covered with gold, picture of the deity of Christ. And we've said He is the God-man, the man Christ Jesus, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we saw that the ark back here had three items in it, the golden pot of manna, that pictures Christ as the bread of life. The tables of the law. It pictures uh, uh, Christ our righteousness. Now this is just review. And uh, we find that the rod that budded, you know, Aaron's rod that budded, picturing Christ as our high priest. Then He provided the mercy seat. And you know, that's where the blood was sprinkled and sinful man could meet a holy God. This is a piece of furniture that exactly fit the ark. Nothing was out of place or not uh, of importance. He provided a table of showbread. We dealt with that. This pictured Christ the bread of life. This is where the priestly family came to eat the bread and sustain their bodies. This is where the priestly family had fellowship with one another and with the bread. 
And that's the way we have fellowship with Christ. The closer they got to the table, the closer they got to each other. You take a, a bunch of, you take, say there's five and five men out here. And as they approach and you come to one spot, you're closer to each other. And when we come to Christ, each of us, when we come closer to the Lord, that of necessity makes us closer to one another. That's a wonderful thought to maintain. Alright? And then He provided the candlestick, the lampstand. And that's a picture of Christ as the light of the world as long as He's in the world. And the lampstand, we've already mentioned this, through the light on the other part of the holy place. All through the holy place, it was the light. It was spread in the holy place. This allowed the, all the priests to see the beauty on the inside. Remember one time we mentioned how it was all with this light shining on gold. Can you imagine what that would be like looking at these sides? All this is white. You know when you have a white ceiling, it just of necessity makes the, makes the building lighter and, and more light. And then think of the light shining on this gold and the reflection of it. We don't know how thick it was plated with gold, but it was covered with gold. The boards on the inside and the outside were covered with gold. And so, by the way, this lampstand was of pure gold of one piece beaten into shape. And this speaks of the suffering and the death of Christ. And the oil that fed the light speaks of the Holy Spirit. And then we studied the altar of incense. This was an approach vessel. This is how you approach God. And this speaks of prayer and incense. And we've given you that before. And it certainly speaks of the intercessory work of Christ, the priestly work of Christ, and so on and so forth. And then we dealt with these coverings. They were four in number, fine linen, speak of Christ's righteousness, His beauty in all of its aspects. Goat's hair spoke of His death for us. This had reference to the great day of atonement. Ramskins died red. Spoke of the sacrificial death in our place. Instead, that means our substitute. The badger skins covered the outside. And this spoke of Christ's humility. Nothing in Him that we should desire of Him, says Isaiah 53. And this was the outer covering that uh, and indicated that there was no beauty in Him that we should desire Him, as Isaiah tells about it. And then we come to the framework of the tabernacle, which we're brought to now. And this, this framework rested on a foundation. And this foundation is something that's of very important, much importance to us. We have already studied that the sides and the whole uh, structure was of a, uh, made of boards, acacia wood, and they were fitly framed together. Uh, God gave Moses the way they were be, to be joined together side by side and set in these sockets of silver. And they were standing upon that silver base And we've already mentioned there were 48 of these boards. We've talked about 20 on each side and then 6 on the west and with a corner board on each end of the the west end. And then the eastern side, if you look at your picture, the eastern side of the tabernacle, see those four pillars? Had five pillars, the eastern side. There's five pillars there. They're not all distinguished there, but you can count them from the corner. And you see there's another one actually on the right-hand side of your picture that's there that's not indicated too much because of the other uh, part of the drawing. But there's actually five pillars. And, of course, that covering that we talked about of goat's hair 
was lapped over the front there, like we mentioned earlier. And then between the holy place and the holy of holies, drop back there looking, you had four pillars stood. Uh, they stood there and they acted as support for the veil. There were four. No, you can see them pretty plainly in between. And the veil was so thick that it said two yoke of oxen in full strength could not separate it, could not have torn the veil. But when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says the veil of the temple ran in the midst from the top to the bottom. The length of this building was 45 feet. The height of the building was 15 feet. And the width of the building was 15 feet. It's told us in the scriptures here in cubits. But they, those cubits equal, see, 10 cubits. Well, 30 cubits long is 45 feet. 15, uh, uh, 10 cubits high makes, makes 15 feet. And the width of it, also 10 cubits, was would be 15 feet. And underneath each board was these silver sockets with these holes into which the tenons of each board had to fit. And the two corner boards fit so that the ring on each end of the corner together at the top and bottom, they were these rings and the bars went through these rings, by the way, from both directions. On the west side, which would be the back of the tabernacle, and also on each side, which would be the walls of the tabernacle. And we'll study those boards and bars as we get into the foundation, I mean the uh, structure of the tabernacle completely. Now then, we uh, have studied that across the back and down each side there were five bars, two, two at the top and two at the bottom, with one running the entire length of the tabernacle. I picture the two at the top and two at the bottom covering the holy place two, and the whole, most holy place, and then the one that went from one end to the other, joining the whole of it together. Now that may not be exact. I may be wrong. So Some people picture it a little different way. But at least there were two bars above and two below. And so we see how that was constructed. And this made the tabernacle strong and sturdy, and humanly speaking, impossible to break down with these bars running from one end to the other to hold it all together. And did you know that it sits on a foundation of silver? We've already talked about that. A hundred sockets of silver, two under each of the 48 boards and four under the pillars of the veil. And each socket, and there's a variation here. Some have said that each socket, we know it weighed a talent. We don't know what that measure is in pounds today. But some have said it's 90 pounds, which we've been teaching. Others say it's 125 pounds. But even 90 pounds weight is quite a bit of weight. Uh, you know, it's more than I want to lift right away. I used to toss these sacks of cement around and stuff like that. And uh, these bundles of shingle, you know, they used to be 210 pounds to the uh, square and then... Uh, Divide that by three. There's three bundles in the square. But then they got to have 235 pounds per square. That was a little more. So you take a bundle of shingles and put it on your shoulder and go up a tall ladder and put them on the roof. You know you've been there and done that. And many of us have. I look out the brethren there and I know that we have. And I used to do it all the time. What I hated though, up in the upper canyon, we'd have a house on the side of the hill. The shingles were delivered down there on the road. You had to go around. To even get on the top of it, you had to go around the house up to the upside of the hill and then with the ladder up. Carry them from the road 
up the side of the building and then up the ladder to get on top of the building. And by the time you did that, with uh, say 30 or 40 squares of shingles, you knew you'd put in a day. And especially getting there and nailing the roof on, well, anyway, that's another story. That's construction, isn't it? We won't get into that right now. But the foundation, if, if they were 90 pound weight, it would hold the boards up readily. But some say they were 125. It's said each socket weighed a talent. A talent. Now, silver speaks of redemption. We've already mentioned that. And this was uh, the redemption money. We showed you how that it was the redemption money that was collected, that was dedicated for the service of the tabernacle. And so all the silver that was in the tabernacle came from, from the redemption money. And redemption is the basis on which Christ has become the meeting place between the holy God and, and His sinful people. If it were not for redemption, we couldn't be in the presence of God. If it were not for the fact that Christ has provided redemption for us, we could not stand in the presence of a holy God. But because He has, there is something there that is very precious. The preciousness of redemption, which was spiritually and typically uh, represented or expressed in these silver sockets. You know, Jesus said in John 12, I believe it's verse 24, it says, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. Except for the death of Christ, we wouldn't have any structure to, to uh, bring us into the presence of the deity or the presence of God, and we would not be uh, saved. And we have quoted time and time again that scripture in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, with the precious blood of Christ. Now, the silver sockets are a symbol of the price that was paid for the ransom of those who are His. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, you're bought with a price, and you're not your own. Let me read in Acts chapter 28, I believe it is. No, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. I want you to look at this. And it's talking about His... His own blood. It says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Now look at this. To feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. You see, Jesus did not have sinful blood running in His veins. The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. Have you ever read a little booklet by Dr. DeHaan called The Chemistry of the Blood. Anyone? The Chemistry of the Blood. And it shows that Jesus, being born of a woman, did not have the sinful blood of man, even though He was made of a woman. And Mary, He was in the womb of Mary, and she brought forth His humanity or His body, but He was fathered by the Holy Spirit, and therefore He had no sinful blood in His veins. And I, I, if you haven't read that, I'd like for you to... Well, maybe if I've got a little copy of it somewhere, I'll let you read it. It's called The Chemistry of the Blood by Dr. DeHaan. And I'm not talking about the sons and grandsons and so on. But anyway, it's a very pointed message on how that Christ could be born of a woman and yet not have sinful blood in His veins. Because the Father is what passes on that bloodline. The mother, mother's blood contributes to the birth, but the father's what passes on that bloodline. 
But anyway, that's another point of chemistry altogether that you'd have to study. Now then, it was on the basis of atonement that the tabernacle was set up. In other words, if it was set up on the silver foundation, and that represents atonement, the atonement money, it was on that base or basis that the tabernacle was set up. And Christ came to die for sinful man. And it's upon the basis of Christ's death <coughs> that we have atonement. You read in John chapter 10, you'll find it verse 17 and 18. tells us He uh, says, I lay down my life for my sheep. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. In fact, there are more verses than one there, but specifically verse 17 and 18 will help you. But uh, He says, I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received from my Father. He received the commandment before He came into the world. We quoted in 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning with verse 18, but verse 20 tells that He was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That it was God's purpose before the foundation of the world. And it was according to that covenant that He was brought again from the dead. Look in Hebrews 13, if you will, verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And it's through the blood of the everlasting covenant that He was brought forth from the dead as a proof and a guarantee of that blood covenant and a seal of it. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That God sealed it with that covenant. And He entered into this covenant of death for this purpose, to save us. I'll have to stop there and give you some uh, more information about the covenant that He entered into and this basis of atonement because we don't have time to continue and there's so much more that I want to say. And then we'll get into these boards and the materials and then 